When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Institute fellow and New Yorker staff writer Masha Gessen is one of the foremost critics of Vladimir Putin. The Man Without a Face, her 2012 biography of Putin, traced his unlikely rise from KGB agent to president of Russia. In 2014, Gessen spoke at the Institute with New Yorker editor David Remnick on the occasion of the publication of their book, Words Will Break Cement, about the performance art group and protest band, Pussy Riot. Gessen's 2017 book, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, won the National Book Award for Nonfiction. Much of the conversation between Gessen and Remnick focuses on Putin and his ambitions for an imperial Russia. I'm very pleased to welcome this week to the Institute, uh, Masha Gessen and David Remnick. David, as you all know, is a longtime editor of The New Yorker and the recipient of a Pulitzer Prize for his 1994 book, uh, The Last Days of the Soviet Empire. Um, he's also a fellow of the Institute. He's also a Moscow correspondent for the Washington Post in his pre-New Yorker days, uh, and is just back for, uh, a couple of days ago from uh, Sochi, where he provided comment for NBC's coverage of the Olympic opening ceremonies. Asha Gessen <laughs> is an intrepid journalist who has written extensively on Russian human rights, particularly uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender <coughs> rights. She is the author or editor of nine books, including the 2012 title, uh, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Her book, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, uh, was just published by Riverhead, and she is also the co-editor of the just-released Gay Propaganda Russian Love Stories from OR Books, which I was handed a copy of just a second ago. It's very handsome. And apparently, if you go to the OR website, there are instructions on how to smuggle this book into Russia. So we'd like you to please welcome David Rimnick and Masha Guest. Just to add a little bit to the introduction of Masha Gessen, I should say that, that lately she's been best known for her writing about Pussy Riot. This book is absolutely extraordinary. When LGBT was not even a, a, a phrase, um, an acronym, uh, Masha was widely known in Moscow as somebody who's speaking out about this and writing about it as a, as a very young woman and extremely courageous. and. After the fall of the Soviet Union, she was part of, I, I think, the most adventurous 
magazine that was around called Itogi and reported widely and everywhere and with great danger attending to her assignments. And she's never stopped. We'll we'll talk today, I think, to begin with about uh, the issues that are are very much uh, on our minds and and, and kind of connected to the Olympics and much more importantly to the Putin regime in general. But her bibliography and her achievement and her her courage, uh, literary, journalistic, personal, is is something that um, uh, knocks me flat. So I'm really honored to be here with Masha Gessner today. <laughs> first things first, there's something called an anti-gay propaganda law. And I, just to sort of set the, the stage of what we're to talk about for a while, not only what is it, but why did they bother? In other words, things were going forward very, very slowly, but in a forward direction, having to do with LGBT issues, their clubs, their political organizations. The knock on the door wasn't coming. It's not a pleasant place to be gay by any stretch of the imagination, but one could say that about a hell of a lot of places on on Earth. Suddenly, a law is passed, first regional, I think in St. Petersburg and other places, and then it became a national matter. Why did they bother? What's, What's in it for... Putin to have a, a, a provocative law like this? Well, first I'll quote the homosexual propaganda law because um, I think the wording is, is very telling. It defines homosexual propaganda as distribution of information that can cause harm to the spiritual or physical development of children, including forming in them the erroneous impression of the social equality of traditional and non-traditional sexual relations. It enshrines second-class citizenship. It makes it a crime to talk about social equality. It's also so incredibly vague that it can only be applied selectively, which is what a law in, a, in an authoritarian state that is trying to become a totalitarian state should be like. I mean, that's, those are the most powerful laws for dictating these are laws that have to be applied selectively. Why bother? Because I think, first of all, it's many people have said that it's a distraction and it's, it's a cynical move to focus attention on a particular mi- uh, hopeless minority. I don't think it's a distraction. I think it's a very organic expression of Putin's worldview. I think when he looked out his window two years ago and he saw hundreds of thousands of people all over the country coming out to protest his regime, what he saw was people protesting not his regime, but Russia itself. So they had to be the enemy. They had to be foreigners. That's where the term foreign agent came up and it has been key to this whole campaign that has been going on. And gays and lesbians are the quintessential foreign agent. I mean, they are clearly agents of the West. There were no gays and lesbians before the Soviet Union collapsed, right? It's also a very convenient minority to pick on because most of the country is convinced that they've never met a gay or lesbian person. So it's very easy to do sort of the classic thing of portraying gays and lesbians on the one hand as extremely dangerous, on the other hand as less than human, which is what this campaign of hate has been doing. And then, of course, they thought that this was the one minority they could beat up on without the world noticing. Uh, and you know, what's been going on, actually, for the last six months or so has been very reminiscent of what was going on with Soviet Jews in the 70s when they could not wrap their minds around why America cared. Why would the world care about Russia's gay propaganda laws? Well, in, the, in that sense, the world cared rather loudly do you have the sense, without having had the opportunity to ask him, whether the, the Putin made a mistake? I get the impression, Masha, that Putin is act genuinely shocked. Yes and no. 
I think that as you know, as with the Jews in the seventies, they persisted, even though they were very surprised by the reaction and aware of the diplomatic cost. They're aware of the diplomatic cost now, but I think it actually makes them like this idea more. Mm. And of course, Putin is looking at uh, at the reaction uh, domestically. He's looking at the reaction in the former Soviet space, and it's not at all negative. Mm. I mean, this thing really has traction. And it's given Russia more than um, a, a community to scapegoat. It has really given them an ideology and a national idea for the first time in a quarter century. Let's talk about that. The, right. There was an attempt in the very beginning, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Yeltsin government put together a committee forming an, a national idea, a usable past. You know, who are we now? Soviet Union is gone. That was a really pointless exercise and came to not much. Now it is a much more organized, focused uh, attempt to come up with a usable past and a national idea. What is it, why is it so important, and how, how does the LGBT issue fit into this larger home? The way that the LGBT issue fits into it is that Russia has suffered great trauma in losing its international grandeur, its, uh, its territorial grandeur, Putin himself is deeply traumatized by this. He's called it, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of our time. Yeah, and I think he seriously believes that. So what is Russia now? If it's not a great empire, if it's not a superpower, what can it offer the rest of the world? And it has suddenly stumbled on this issue. It can offer the rest of the world traditional values. Russia now wants to become the traditional values capital of the world. Putin, in his State of the Federation address in December, he went ideological for the first time. He's, he's always had a very pragmatic rhetoric. And all of a sudden, he started talking about the role of Russia in history and in the world. And what he said was that Russia is the light of traditional values that resists the darkness of tolerance. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but I'm using all the key words. And this, is, this has become very much part of sort of everyday political rhetoric. When uh, the, uh, the parliament was passing this resolution on Ukraine in December, the head of the Committee on International Relations in his introduction said, and we understand that if Ukraine goes west, it will increase the sphere of influence of gay culture. I mean, that's what's at stake in whether Ukraine goes west or not. In January, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs released its report on human rights violations in Europe and reported that the human rights of the traditional majority are systematically violated in Europe by the aggressive homosexual minority. And only Russia can try to defend poor Europeans from this. Let's pause for a moment over the practical effects of this law on the ground, uh, which has affected your life. Two passports, three children. <laughs> three children, exactly. And you've, after living for, in Moscow now for probably 20 years, when you went back as a teenager, your parents... It comes from a literary intellectual family, and you went back as a teenager. You, in one interview, you said, I went uh, back to, to, to Moscow as a teenager, and I, I, I came as, and, I, and became a lesbian. In other words, you, you, be, you, you were transformed in some way, found yourself. Now you're back. Why are you back? The homosexual propaganda law is actually a small part of this campaign that's been going on. It's, it's sort of, it's gotten the most attention because it's so bizarre and so blatant. But basically, they're moving towards banning LGBT families. They, uh, they have banned same-sex adoptions, and they have also, uh, the, the Committee on the Family in Parliament has declared its intention to create a mechanism for removing children from same-sex families. And I 
I'm not only publicly out, I'm also publicly out as a lesbian mother uh, of three children. So the names of my children are well known to anybody who's interested in this. And um, the leader of the um, Orthodox activist movement, which is the movement of thugs who beat LGBT activists up uh, every time there's a gay rights protest, uh, he's actually personally volunteered to adopt my children and raise them. So it seemed like... um, it was time to get out. <laughs> We've seen vid- uh, videos on, on YouTube and courtesy of Human Rights Watch of beatings, of vicious harassment. How widespread is this? What is the degree to which the state is enacting this law? What is it doing and what is it not doing? The biggest effect is actually violence. Because, again, it's a, the legislation is a small part of a larger campaign of hatred that has been pervasive on television. It's uh, it's an incredible campaign. I mean, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church has called the international trends for legalizing same-sex marriage a sign of the coming apocalypse. There's a series of commentaries on the federal television channel that goes out to 98% of the households explaining that gays and lesbians are the Antichrist. But the head of the Ministry of Truth has called for banning blood and organ donations by gay uh, people and if they should die in car accidents, I'm quoting, uh, we need to bury their hearts underground or burn them for they're unsuitable for the aging of anyone's life. That has been basically an open and ongoing invitation and incitement of, of violence. Mm-hmm. And there has been an incredible amount of violence. There are distinct kinds of violence. There's the sort of organized for the cameras violence, which is what you've seen. Um, it's when, whenever there's a gay rights protest, these thugs who call themselves orthodox activists who beat up um, activists, and when the LGBT protesters are properly bloody, then they're rounded up and put in police vans and taken to the police precincts, and the orthodox activist is banned. Um, they're never arrested. There's vigilante violence. There are online communities geared toward luring gay men and gay, gay teenagers under the guise of introducing them to somebody, and um, then they're humiliated and beaten on camera. Did, did you think the, the administration, the US administration, responded to this adequately, appropriately, in terms of the delegation it did and did not send to the Olympics? I thought the delegation was great. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it was the first delegation in years that didn't include any highly placed government officials. Uh, it also included several open gay athletes. What was great about it you know, is that this was Putin's party. It was very important for him to be able to take a picture with the guys. So two years ago, there were mass demonstrations on the streets of Moscow. It seems to me, Masha, that what Putin fears most and what, what animates all of this is the notion of overthrow. Putin really was spooked by the sight of hundreds of thousands of people on the street. It's a very natural development of his politics. I mean, his politics have always been a politics of mobilization. He's always told the people of Russia that Russia is on the brink of collapse, on the brink of catastrophe, and only he can save it. So this, this protest movement represented, on the one hand, sort of an intensified threat, on the other hand, an opportunity to uh, escalate the mobilization. Why did Yeltsin appoint him in the first place? He couldn't find anybody to run the country. <laughs> Seriously. What was happening in 1999 was that Yeltsin was extremely isolated, uh, quite ill, had reasonable fear that if he left office and an opposition candidate was elected, he would be prosecuted. 
So he needed to engineer some sort of solution that would uh, protect him from prosecution after he left office. That solution included early <coughs> crash elections, but it also had to include somebody that the family, uh, which was a, a mafia term used to describe Yeltsin's inner circle, that the family felt that it could manipulate, uh, which was also par uh, partly out of necessity because, of course, he had alienated every politician with any kind of weight and charisma. Uh, and they had pretty much all gone over to the opposition. So he had a lineup of faceless bureaucrats to pick from, and he picked wrong. One of the elements of this um, political moment is the Russian Orthodox Church. Russian Orthodox Church, which throughout the Soviet period was generally crushed, and, and, and except for the period when Stalin found it quite mm -hmm. useful to mobilize people at home during Second World War, the Great Patriotic War. Part of the drama of Pussy Riot is the Russian Orthodox Church and its role in Putinism. I, I, I wish you could explain that for us. The Russian Orthodox Church has traditionally served at the pleasure of the state. Uh, it's a state church. It was decimated in the Soviet period, but to the extent that a small number of clergy were allowed to, to work, they all worked for the KGB. So Putin and the church hierarchy come from the same corporation. It's very easy for them to cooperate. When Putin felt that he was um, under threat, when he was running for, ele uh, for election to his third questionably constitutional term as president, and he was faced with this huge protest movement for the first time, he called on the Russian Orthodox Church to campaign for him. And the patriarch campaigned for him. The patriarch uh, basically compared him to God. It's a good endorsement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's why Pussy Riot ch uh, chose to protest in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, which is the biggest, most horrible, most official cathedral in Moscow. Two members of Pussy Riot just came home from what can only be described as a prison colony, and they appear on Colbert. They have a kind of pop standing. But you know these women extremely well, and they're really young. What was their experience in prison? How did it change them? And what do they do now? What, what importance do they have, if any, when they go back? They were college students when they were arrested. I mean, they were college students who invented this incredible prank. It was brilliant. It was spectacular. They didn't expect to go to jail for two years. Um, they didn't expect this witch trial to become part of their performance. It was, it was a brilliant sort of second act. But that's not what they expected. They expected maybe 15 days administrative arrest, which is important because they were the first people arrested and sentenced to real jail time for peaceful protest. In the two years since, it's become kind of routine. And uh, they went in, you know, college students, and they came out seasoned political activists, incredibly articulate, world famous. I mean, the, their fame came to them while they were in jail. They've had this incredible learning curve since they came out, and, and they seem to be up to the challenge. They want to f fight for prisoners' rights. They have traveled some and studied prison reform, uh, penal reform in other countries. They came here. They went to, to the Netherlands. Uh, they're just back. Um, I think, you know, they have, on the one hand, incredible potential for mobilizing, especially young people in Russia, because they have the kind of uh, recognition, the kind of credibility that prison gives. Uh, and that's being coming out of prison with the kind of dignity that they came out with gives, um, and they have access to media. On the other hand, with the crackdown, I don't know that that uh, I even that kind of potential, how much it can actually give. It's not so much I'm pushing back on this point, but I, I just want to say that it seems to me this 
what happens some, with some of the early coverage of the Olympics that I could see was that Soviet cartoons were being played out, the general crumminess of things, bad toilets, bad water, and so on. And what, what was missed here was the incredible sophistication of this regime as opposed to the Soviet cartoon. There, there are certainly prison colonies, but you don't have to throw every intellectual into prison. Mm-hmm. You throw two people from Pussy Riot, one banker, this, that, and the other. How many real political prisoners are there really in Russia today? They're in the does, it's hard to calculate it. That, that's a it's very a, good question, yeah. But I wish you could say something about the sophistication of, say, for example, the media environment in today's Russia, as opposed to the, so, the blanket totalitarian view of the press and intellectual life. How is it different now? And how does that reflect on what Putinism as opposed to late Sovietism is? Well, actually, I think that Putin's playbook is the late Soviet playbook. The late Soviet Union was not a totalitarian society, in the, in the sense that there was no total control. It was actually a society of selective enforcement, which kept every, uh, most people scared enough not to ever say or do anything. It was also a society built on laws that made everyone a criminal. And that's exactly what Putin is recreating. The homosexual propaganda law is a good example, but there actually has been, uh, there's been a series of legislation over the last few years. But Masha, in late Sovietism, until it got to the Gorbachev, Glasnost stage, there was no wildly, publication was wholesale repressed, intellectual life was highly controlled, much more than it is now. Sure, no, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I wouldn't make a straight comparison. Right. I, um, and of course, the biggest uh, difference is that the borders were closed, and they're open now. At the same time, what they realize is that there are very few Russians who actually travel abroad or travel to the West. There are very few Russians who consume the independent media. They continue to crack down on the independent media. That space is getting smaller and smaller because the repressive mechanism cannot stand still. But really, it's not necessary, actually, to maintain uh, an authoritarian state. Um, Its natural tendency, however, is to move further and further toward totalitarianism because, again, it has to exercise its repressive muscle. It also doesn't control it very well. Question. Thanks for a fascinating presentation. I have a question about how reactions in the West and how people uh, should react to this kind of thing. Obviously, uh, we should be critical and stand up for principle and criticize things in other countries as much as in our own and so on and so forth. The problem, it seems to me, that the more people criticize the decadent West, the more it confirms Putin and his supporters in their attitude, because of course they are protesting the decadent West. They're decadent Westerners. We stand up for, for true values. So how can one get through that particular war if it is a all Well, I think that's going to happen anyway. Their opinion on the decadent West is fully formed. And uh, uh, there's nothing the decadent West can do to influence that. In fact, it's very difficult to calculate a strategy in dealing with Putin because it's difficult to calculate a strategy in dealing with a thug and a bully. You, uh, yes, you can always expect uh, a greater and opposite reaction from him. So, strategy aside, I think the West should just do the right thing. It is wrong to condone a dictator. It is wrong to sit down with him. It is wrong to go to his party, which was true of the Olympics, and I'm very happy about the delegation there, but you know, there's the G8 coming up in St. Petersburg in June, and other 
opportunities for the West to express its disagreement what's going on in Russia, and I think it has to be expressed, I mean, that's because it's the right thing to do. You're not suggesting that we have no diplomatic ties with them, or, or try hope against hope to do something about Syria, which is long past doing. You just walk away from it? You boycott diplomatic relations with Russia? I don't know that I would go that far, although yeah, I, I think we have to mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. the actual extremely sad state of diplomatic relations as they stand. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think both of you mentioned that Putin is mindful of the domestic advantages of pursuing this kind of suppression and brutality against the LBG, LBGT community. Uh, if you, it's of course a, a no-brainer to, to recognize that the, uh, the astonishing change that has come over the United States and attitudes towards gays as such, uh, and also their rights, such as marriage and employment, so on, has in no small part been driven by uh, changes of attitude to, among younger Americans. The lower down you go on the age scale, the higher the tolerance. So one wonders what is the what are the attitudes are our attitudes not been, have attitudes not been changing among younger people in, okay. uh, in Russia? Uh, if they are, is it they don't get expressed because of this repression? Maybe the propaganda law is one of the ways of, of discouraging this because the younger Russians, of course, must be au courant with what's been going on here because you know, the world is a sieve. A couple of points. First of all, it's very difficult to measure public opinion in an authoritarian state. Uh, second of all, Russia or the Soviet Union did not live through the sexual revolution. So that's a very important part of why uh, it's so easy to influence Russian attitudes. This is the first time that sexuality has actually been discussed in the public sphere. It was never a topic. There was never a language. And that's also part of what's made this campaign so effective, because by addressing LGBT issues, the state immediately hijacked the debate, instantly. But the other thing is, I wonder what would happen in this country if you had total state control over all the national networks, and if those national networks broadcast messages of hate 24-7 for two years. I think that would have a profound influence on in attitudes. And I don't think that you know, we would see the kind of progress that, that, that we've seen here. A very interesting television station for everybody to watch, which is available here on your cable thing. It's called Russia Today, with a little green RT. It's a fantastically accurate, I think, reflection of Putinism's collection of resentments and you say this, but I say that. You get a lot of that, well, who are you to lecture us after Iraq? Vietnam, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Stalin was bad, but he never used a nuclear weapon on so and so. This, which is in various Putin speeches as well. I mean, to 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 really learn about the psychology of what's going on in all its dimensions, it's fascinating to watch that station. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Hi, I'm Vivian In the days of George Kennan, Kennan famously quoted a Russian politician at great length in one of those famous cables. And said, you would have thought this was Parliament member, uh, do a member of the of Russia, but it was written in 1957. So in 1957, it sounded exactly the same. Then, so falls, Yeltsin comes to power, and overnight, thousands and millions of Russians are returning to religion, and the growth right of um, 
financial cancerism. Uh, five years ago, my brother and I spent a month in Siberia. Fun family. <laughs> Everywhere we went, we were stunned by the extraordinary creation of every major cathedral that had ever existed. People everywhere were proud to tell me that for seven years they raised a dollar or it was a, month, a, a year from every member of the, uh, the, the, the area until finally they could put up this turquoise and gold cathedral that had been a Marxist warehouse. So for me, Putin is an extension only of a very, very long line of Russian incapacity to come into the world as we know it, and every time it gets more and more extreme, but it's exactly the same. In other words, what's interesting about now is that Putin picks up on Western uh, buzzwords, gay, and the pussy rifles, that he comes to the West to find those prohibitions which we ourselves have been struggling with, and he <laughs> overtakes them in order to increase his own separation from the West. Not that sure. insistence on separation from the West is as old as Petersburg. I mean, it's as old as, as Russian has ever been. So I've always been interested in trying to figure out the historical line that would explain more deeply this. this okay. Thank you, Masha. Yes, I I completely agree with everything you just said. I mean, I think the best uh, writer on contemporary Russia is Alexander Herzen. You know, everything he's, he wrote still stands. Yes. Who's got, who's got the dancing microphone? Stephen Liu. I want to ask a question about Western journalists. I know West, Western journalists. Western journalists and, and, and whether, yes, okay. whether the freezes uh, you talk about the diplomats is, is working with them. I noticed that David Sattar, who used to be a financial journalist, was thrown out of the country. Journalist, was thrown out of the so is that a general trend too? Uh, yes, it is. David Satter um, was, I think, very smart to draw attention to his case because actually this sort of thing has been going on for a long time. There's a long line of British journalists in particular uh, because I think the British media have been um, a lot more critical of Putin for a lot longer. There's a long line of British journalists who have been denied visas uh, under various excuses. Most people try not to draw attention to their cases because they are hoping to negotiate and figure out a way to, um, to get back into the country. It never works. So I'm glad Satter finally spoke up about it. Sorry, would you pass the mic to Liz Holtzman? Thank you. I just uh, wanted to, to uh, broaden this a little bit and uh, ask you whether you think that any of the foreign policy issues, diplomatic relations with the U.S. or the West, have influenced Putin's um, repressive policies, particularly including this, for example, the advancement of NATO, I think that yes, that has that has affirmed and shaped his view of the world uh, and his very effective political rhetoric that uh, that Russia is a, is a country under siege. I think that quite possibly, if not for the uh, bombing of uh, Serbia in 1999, uh, Putin wouldn't have come to power. So uh, I think it's you know there was there was a major event for the way that Russians viewed the rest of the world. Encroachment is a theme in all of Putin's speeches. Mm -hmm. Expansions of NATO, U.S. involvement in undermining positions mm -hmm. in countries like Ukraine, it's there all the time. Yep. That, that sense of resentment again. Mm -hmm. Can you take one, one more question? I'm getting the impression that you guys both feel that 
the chick is up a little bit. That Putin woke up one morning and worried that there were too many people on the street and he got scared. And now, from your accounts of both the media and the politics and the momentum, the opposition is shrinking, except that you turn on Colbert and watch these two crazily brave women with a strength that comes from I don't know where, declaring a kind of vision which is very unputinish. So I have to assume that they've lost, and that's your sense, and those 200,000 people that walked, they've lost too, and that this now becomes a, a center of a sort of traditional ethos that just manufactures itself. I, I think it's worth remembering in, in, in any society like this, that dissident movements are not huge. Four people unfurled a banner on Red Square in 1968 against the Czech invasion. Four people. The dissident movement never got to be a, the majority movement under the, under the Soviets. These were highly, highly selective and brave people, whether they were intellectuals or, or dissident military people. And, and it, so now the space is stranger. It's less comprehensively punitive than the heart of the Soviet era. But it still requires enormous bravery. You watch those opening Olympic ceremonies, and people from perfectly free countries did not raise a finger, a rainbow glove, a button, a flag. It requires incredible bravery. John Carlos and Tommy Smith were really brave, and they came from a from here. So it, it's worth remembering what is required to be someone like Masha Gessen, and it's what's required to, to be a, a, a dissident full stop. It's, it's, it's an enormously difficult thing. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.